0: In this episode, I'm joined by Naomi Levine, author under her birth name Norma Levine, of multiple books, including The Miraculous 16th Karmapa, A Quest for the Hidden Lands, and Chronicles of Love and Death, My Years with the Last Spiritual King of Bhutan. Naomi recalls why she dropped out of academia to pursue an alternative lifestyle and through a series of life-changing encounters with Tibetan gurus such as Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, the 16th Karmapa and Thay Situpa converted to Buddhism and moved to India to pursue a life of yogic practice. Naomi describes her close discipleship under Tai Situpa, and recounts her initial meeting and subsequent multi-year relationship with the Shabdrung, a highly revered Bhutanese tulku said to possess potent magical abilities. Naomi also discusses the difficulty of differentiating between crazy wisdom and abusive behavior, reflects on her own naivety about what the practice of Vajrayana really entails, and describes the signs of enlightenment after the death of great beings. So without further ado, Naomi Levine. Naomi Levine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today about your life and your many books, in fact, and you're still actually writing more and publishing more. Perhaps you could say something about this new set of books you've been writing, this series of trilogies.
1: That's right. That's right. I got to the point during the pandemic where I felt I really wanted to write, and I I always had this idea that I wanted to leave a a legacy of some kind being of uh, uh, a certain generation, which is you could say the sixties seventies generation I wanted to leave something behind that really puts the context into uh what's so different now you know everything is so different now so i want i felt like i i had i had left um the world completely behind during the pandemic and I wanted to bring out the stories in terms of like spiritual um, adventures almost and also driven by a very strong desire to recreate uh, in a very easy to read, easy to understand form that anybody could and, you know, get into. And so I recreated a, the first trilogy was called A Quest for the Hidden Lands. And uh, that's a photograph of the paperback with uh, an endorsement by Dr. Ian Baker, whom we all know to be the uh, uh, primary maestro and um, key player in discovering the waterfall, uh, the secret waterfall and uh, all that which is probably too much to go into now. Anyway, it starts, for me, in that book, it starts from the beginning where I have um, them, and I describe it as a meeting of minds with my my guru, who turned out to be my guru. So, and then it goes on to another story about my dog, uh, which uh, I like very much, actually. Uh, And then further, it goes into how I managed, eventually, after 15 years, to explore uh, the hidden lands. Uh, of Pemaco, the hidden land of Pemico. Um So that is one uh, trilogy which is available now on Amazon, Kindle, in various formats, also uh, Audible. And uh, the next one that I have put out recently is called uh, Kailash, um, the Precious Snow Mountain. And it, uh, it uh, has a central figure in it who I was very, very fortunate to meet, uh, called uh, Lo Kunzang Rinpoche, a great yogi from living in Tibet. And uh, he was our guide around the uh, main story there, the, the, uh, the pilgrimage. Uh, and then I will write another set of trilogies uh, called A Twist in the Tale, which are a bit more political so uh, and then turn the three into one book called Stepping Stones, which really explores the journey. That's what I can call it—the journey and the setbacks of the journey and the immense uh, joy in uh, completing the journey.
0: Yes, that's that's very interesting. In another of your book, Chronicles of of Love and Death, you describe. Your generation you're talking there about about your generation is the last free generation and able to go where you wanted without passports and etc et etc cetera, et cetera. so I'm wondering what you meant by that. if you could expand a bit on that idea of the last free generation it's something that comes up in a few of your books, and as you look at the world today compared to then what what are the dimensions of, of meaning that are associated with that
1: well um Today, for example, if you wanted to go overland to India, you simply couldn't do it, Um, absolutely not. Uh, You would never get through uh, places like Iran or Afghanistan or uh, probably even maybe Pakistan. Um, And uh, at that time that we did this overland journey, I think it was, I'm trying to remember when it was, 19, yeah, 1979, 79 that was, by bus. Uh, not not um, a magic bus, not a bus that you took, you sat down and you got there at the end, you know, you know five days later or something. No, it was local buses all the way. And uh, what I mean is we had the freedom to do that and not to be afraid. Actually, not to be afraid. There were no terrorists around. Afghanistan was, when we finally got to Afghanistan, actually, we got to Kandahar. And uh, it was delightful. It was peaceful. People were, it was a hippie. It was a hippie culture. The hippies were there. In fact, I think the hippies were living in those caves that the uh, Taliban then um, lived in, Tora Bora those kind of places. And I didn't classify myself as a hippie, I have to say, because uh, I was an academic, and I had left um, the academic world. Uh, Really, when I say academic, I mean, doctoral theses and the like, and uh, literature was my background. Uh, I had left that uh, behind. And, you know, today, it would be actually very unusual to be within shooting distance of getting a a very high degree like a PhD and uh, then just saying no I'm not going down that road there's another road that I want to go down and I'm going to go down it to have the freedom to say that to oneself and feel that it was the right decision you know or you could make it the right decision and that is a very interesting freedom to have um i never thought about security or uh the future and uh or my uh career or anything like that it was actually that's that's a that's a freedom but um most people 90% of people young people now don't have maybe there's a gap here but that's about it no this was a full pulling out of, of of a culture that I was born in, you know, in, into this culture, into Western culture, and then lived for five years in a, a monastery, built my uh, retreat house there, and thought that I would stay there the rest of my life. That was, that was the kind of freedom, and we didn't need visas as being, um, you know, I was, uh, at the time I was, I had a Canadian passport. Uh, we didn't need visas, British and Commonwealth, no visas so uh these these things were uh really a a a generational and i'm talking about you know it went up until about the 80s i think and then the world changed quite significantly and continues to change of course everything does but freedom is a is a word that i i i really um Uh, It was really generated in me in the 60s and 70s, I would say, because there was freedom there. There was freedom to choose your own life. And of course, not everybody had it even then. You'd have to be middle class. You'd have to be or something like that. You know, you'd have to have some kind of understanding and maybe even just intellectual understanding to be able to negotiate the parameters of freedom.
0: what do you think changed? What did you see changing that yeah. that closed that off?
1: yeah uh, for one thing in this country it was Margaret Thatcher uh, and her um, although I don't dislike her now uh, but uh, at the time I remember um, that that was um you know that was something that changed the country, the strikes the way the way everything was handled. It, you know, it had to happen. I'm not. I'm not make. I'm not a political type of. You know, I'm not left or right. I'm not interested in all that kind of thing. But Thatcher was a factor, and uh, the European Union, uh, which we had just joined, I think around that time, uh, changed it as well, for the better or for worse. I have no idea. But that th- those were like immediate factors involved in. The change that weren't there when I first came to this country to live in the uh, 70s. Um, and, um, of course, we were the generation of peace and love, you know, music. Uh, music changed and became more punk, more anarchic, uh, all, all, all these things changed considerably and then there was you know the royal family as well and the um oh I mean this 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 country is very much to do with the monarchy I think has a great deal to do with the monarchy things were starting to splinter off even then from the the cohesiveness that I thought was there before
0: yes I have heard it said that for a counterculture To thrive, there has to be a culture against which to be counter.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. And there was, well, of course, you know, the 50s and, you know, up until the mid 60s, uh, culture was very just post-war, wasn't it? And, And the attitudes of people towards sex and religion and so on were very narrowly defined. And that—that that of course started to change around uh, uh, Woodstock and the Peace and Love Revolution. And the music, the, I mean, the music—I think was a revolution in itself. You know, I still listen to—I still listen to music. You know, I still listen to Bob Dylan. I still listen to the Rolling Stones. I would still go to concerts. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, I love Johnny Cash. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's, that's my take on it.
2: Mm.
0: Well, let's talk a bit then about, about that time period uh, for you biographically. You were born in, as you mentioned, in Canada, near Montreal, and you were completing graduate degrees in drama and literature at McGill and Toronto. And you, you, I believe you finished your PhD thesis. I suppose you just didn't defend it.
2: That's right.
0: Um, yeah, that seems an unusual choice. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about about your background, the context of your upbringing and so on, and why you made that decision at that point.
1: yeah, I'm trying to think back what was the precise the the moment I was um, yeah, I was writing a thesis on a, an English playwright called Arnold Wesker who was part of a of a um a, a grassroots um, playwright movement, including um, John Osborne and uh, Harold Pinter and uh, Bernard Copps, Anyway, these these were sort of like more uh, I don't know what you could call it. As they certainly didn't all have the same idea as Wesker. But anyway, I was writing a thesis on on Wesker, and uh, I was living in his house in the Black Mountains of Wales. That was the thing. He told me, go go and stay there. There's nobody there now. And um, you can write a thesis uh, in, in peace. So I did. But the first thing that happened is that I met a group of um, squatters living in a, um, a deserted house quite close and uh, became quite good friends with them and hung out with them. And then I started to think, Getting to Heian Wai was a big deal in my life and some of, several of my stories actually start out in Heian Wai because I found it such an extraordinary uh, and uh, interesting village in itself. Just the, the way that the river, you know, flowed in front, winding in front and the Black Mountains behind, the feng shui of Heian Wai was 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 something that everybody could look at and say, one day this place will really be on the map. And it was inhabited by hill farmers and gentry and uh, shopkeepers. And uh, I kind of fell in love with the Black Mountains and Heian Why, And suddenly the thesis started to play a uh, a, a, a fainter and fainter role in my life. But I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of person who likes to finish what they start. So I kept on doing it anyway. And um, of course, theses require footnotes and, and uh, bibliographies and things like that. So I got very, you know, I was very good at doing that. But one day I thought, this is not a life. This is not, this is not the life that I want to lead. Now, the life that I was born into was, um, uh, I come from a Jewish family. My um, mother was born in Poland, but she got out when she was 12 years old. So she was, she didn't see, she didn't, she didn't experience the war, the uh, second world war. And my father was born in Canada, uh, so I never felt uh, akin um, being being um, uh, into the religion. The religion didn't mean anything to me, and nor does Christianity nor Islam. I mean, the theocratic—is uh, uh, that the right word? Theocratic, yeah. The God, the God religions. Uh, 't don't, uh, don't hit it.'t don't, don't strike a bell for me at all. Um, and uh, so I was a bit um, a little bit of an alien in my family, and uh, I also actually felt like an alien. So I withdrew. I, I withdrew, and I started to find a, a life somewhere else within uh, another culture. And I guess it was just around the time of the um, big uh, counterculture movement. Uh, and uh, I felt much more comfortable and freer within that. And most of my friends were uh, in that um, kind of age range as well. So uh, I moved away from my uh, family. I moved away from my uh, birth religion. Uh, I. Um, I moved away from my country. And because I was always um, literary, literary, I was always a kind of literary person, uh, I I found a very comfortable, uh, I found it comfortable being in in, uh, the UK, meaning Wales and England really. And uh, that's where my life, my new life, I should say, was around the time of my Saturn return when I was 28. And things started to change in a very rapid way, you know. Um, it was it was a really transformative couple of, couple of years which brought me to Hay-On-Y and to uh, deciding not to defend my thesis and freaking everyone out of course. And then I opened up a natural food shop which was kind of wonderful, you know. Uh, the first of its kind in on Wai. And I had the experience of standing behind a gigantic mahogany counter and, uh, you know, scoops and uh, bags and barrels and things like that and recycling. I mean, I was way ahead of the time, I have to say, way ahead. So uh, I kept that up for about seven years. And then what happened is I, during that time, during that time, I, uh, I got a phone call from a friend in, uh, Aberdeenshire, uh, Lord, um, um, Urquhart, Alex, Alex Urquhart. And he lived in a castle there and he invited me to go come and visit. So uh, I decided that I would need to stop somewhere along the way. Uh, I found out that there was a, a monastery, not a monastery, but something where I thought, well, I can stay there. And that was called Samling Ling in Scotland. So I stayed there. And who should arrive there but Dilgo Kenshi Rinpoche, which was his first time out in the uh, West, first time out of Bhutan. So that was a major, a major, truly a major event. Uh, I went back and then the, I went back to Hayon on Wai, that is. And then a few years later, I don't think it was more than a few years, uh, uh, the 16th Karmapa came to uh, a little, um, a little farm in the Black Mountains called Karmanara. And there he did the black crown ceremony uh, for, um, well, maybe about 70 people uh, coming out the doorway. Uh, I was right inside. It was, it was an event that uh, changed the course of my life, changed the direction of my life truly, and set me on the road to uh, India. So I gave up everything again, sold everything, uh, sold my beautiful showman's wagon, and um, sold uh, my shop that I was running and brought my dog to India and started to live at uh, Sherabling Monastery uh, in the uh, foothills of the Himalayas and stayed there for five years and built a house. So that's the brief, that's the brief version, summary. I hope I didn't leave out anything too much.
0: <laughs> yes. and. Uh... Actually, in Quest for Hidden Lands, about that time, you write, "Um, My budding career as a literary scholar was suddenly hijacked by a singular, seemingly random event. It was 1976 when I tiptoed into a tiny Buddhist shrine room in a farmhouse nestled into the Black Mountains of Wales, and there beheld a Tibetan master sitting on a splendid throne, performing a ceremony known as the Black Hat. My busy academic mind came to an immediate stop, suspended, and remained in the dimension his presence had created. I was inside a deep level of mind, very familiar, but lost and forgotten, like the secret garden of childhood. The master on the throne was the 16th Karmapa, and although I never even spoke to him personally, he introduced me to the essence, the truth hidden behind that busyness. So that was quite a period of meeting some of the most uh, revered gurus and masters at the time, having, having come out of Tibet as they did. Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, you, you mentioned, as well as the 16th Karmapa. I'm wondering if you might say something a little bit more about those first meetings. I believe it was Dilgo Kense first, and then 16th Karmapa. Your impressions of them?
1: Well, uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche was the biggest man I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> huge, huge in stature. I mean, that was my first impression, and uh, naked to the waist and uh, with a top knot and he sat on the on the throne for uh, several days because it was just before losar it was just before the tibetan new year i mean none of this did i know when i set out none of none of it at all i thought i was just going to see lord alex in his castle so this was a this was an amazing um well i don't even know if you can call it coincidence because it's more than that it's destiny really isn't it and uh, uh, now I've got my dog here. Uh, but um, uh, so that my impression of Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche was again, this kind of very similar thing happened where you don't know what's going on intellectually, but you know that you're in the right place and the right time and it's meaningful in a completely different way. So it's not, it's not like I knew anything at all. I didn't even, I wasn't looking for Buddhism. I wasn't looking for anything. I, it was, you know, it was, but again with Dilgo Kenshi Rinpoche, I didn't, at that time, I didn't try to make an appointment with him or speak to him, I just sat there while the while the this great orchestra of of horns and drums and cymbals um, was a sort of like an introduction to the purification for the new year. So I, I I mean, I was impressed. I was impressed deeply in a part of my being that I had not um, ever been inside, if you know what I mean. And that was the, you know, very, very, even more profound experience with the 16th Karmapa. The 16th Karmapa was not only like that, but to me, he was extremely, the only word I can use is awesome. Awesome, even though it means something different now or people use it in a different way. But it was truly like, how do I even function? In, in terms of speaking to someone like that. Does he even speak? It was that kind of thing. Here was somebody who was beyond everything, beyond everything and yet there, you know? So that's the presence that I absorbed, which I later understood to be more like a pointing out instruction in terms of coming into contact with your own mind, you know? understanding your own but I didn't know that at the time I had no 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 way of putting that together at the time it's something that came much later so I was very lucky to meet lucky I mean all of us in that generation were extremely uh, blessed with the good fortune and timing and then of course I went to India and there I met my guru uh, Taisita Rinpoche and he was so different, because although Tibetan, he was very interested in Westerners, very interested in speaking English, very interested in everything kind of um, uh, Aquarian, you know, very interested in music, you know, he was like a brother. More than a guru at first, at first, I mean, this is to say, this is the honeymoon, this is a sort of like the engagement period, but um, yeah, I kind of fell in love, really. Uh, that's what it was. I fell in love, and uh, I, I wanted to do nothing more than spend the rest of my life with my guru, but of course, things don't always work out you know, the way you think they're going to work out. So, uh, I, but I never uh, would give up that period of time that I spent there, five years in all, with all the, um, you know, the the, the, the the bumps and bruises along the way. Um, I'm very grateful to have had that period.
0: In uh, Chronicles of Love and Death, you write about that period. In that initial intoxicated stage of devotion, Thaisita Rinpoche was a Buddha, whose pure love melted our hearts and saturated Bling in light rays. It seemed enough. We would build houses, receive teachings, do retreats, and attain enlightenment. I thought it might take up to 10 years. Yeah. So that's actually a theme I wanted to ask you about or explore with you, which is what you thought you were getting into at the time. and what it ended up being. And now how you reflect on that. You talked about that those initial encounters in, in 1976 as being, you'd already dropped out, but now you were tuning in to use the, that counterculture phrase. And I wondered about that. What did you think you were tuning in to? Was it that mystical experience that was your North Star? Was there a social dimension to it? Was there a dimension of purpose or meaning? What did you think? At that day, of course, in those days, of course, you didn't know about about the religion in depth. What did you think you were getting into? and and how did it turn out? And now what do you think? looking back?
1: Well, that's a very that's that's a very, very uh, profound question, really, really profound. I mean, I did not think I was getting into another religion. I did not see Buddhism as a religion. I saw Buddhism as uh, the highest um, path to explain, that explained everything. Like when I looked at the wheel of life or someone explained the wheel of life to me, I saw what it was. Uh, I understood what it was, you know, like in a very, could say, a shallow way. But I, I understood that this was a map of the mind you know and and so uh i uh i think i realized that i had always been a buddhist but i had to find i had to find that i had to find that out for myself but i i never looked back or regretted anything about that so i had this like most people i think at the time a rather romantic idea of um, what I was getting into. And I had no idea what was really involved in uh, Vadriana. Vadriana was what I was uh, immediately uh, stepped into, not the not the, um, Hina, oh, not Hinayana, but the uh, Theravadan tradition. I went right into the Tibetan tradition, which is all Vadriana, And before we knew it, I mean uh Tai Situ had us all doing uh prostrations and uh uh the the uh, the vehicle, the um um the preliminaries and uh long retreats on Nunye, which is a fasting retreat where you don't eat for uh you take your last, you take your last sip of water basically at uh, one o'clock or something like that, noon, and you don't eat again the whole of the next day, and then you eat lunch or breakfast the day following. So it's a very long; it goes like that, in and out, in and out, and you do as many as you can do at a time. But we were all given hundred and eight sets, which is actually six months of this. But you can break it up and have you know holidays or vacations in between. So we were all given that to do, and it was a, a, a you know it was a very interesting period of time because first we got to uh, you know know our guru, or he got to know us. Definitely, we got to know him, but that was a different story altogether. And uh, and he got to know us, and then and then he gave one to one teachings one-to-one teachings on whatever it was. Uh, I did quite a few retreats there. Uh, and uh, I really, it was hard. It was hard. It was tough. It was, it was a bit of a, a boot camp. And uh, you, of course, you're free to go anytime you want, but You know once you get to that point where you found your guru and you feel comfortable with your uh, circle of of, um, like-minded friends and you're forming a little sangha you don't want to go anywhere else there is nowhere else to go frankly even if you wanted to you can go to dharamsala you know from there and uh, and join the um the people from rajneesh ashram from Pune and dance on the tabletops but you, you don't, you are, you have found, you know, the jewel, and you, one knows it, one simply knows it, and so nowhere else to go. Uh, anyway, uh, what was the question? Yeah, how did it end up? How does it end up? It ends up with uh, you understanding, and I'm talking about me, Uh, and I think probably most people, you understand that the guru is not your best
2: friend. That's the truth. The guru is not your best friend. He is a guru. He can
1: turn around and do and say things that nobody else can do and the point is to really crack the ego So that's a very unpleasant experience, I have to say. Nobody likes their ego to be uh, trampled on. Nobody likes to be humiliated. And and it goes on. It goes on. So the end experience is that I think I couldn't... uh, I think I couldn't take it, um, the whole thing. I couldn't take the whole thing. And I asked... uh, my guru, um, if I could go to Karmapa, I needed a break. Karmapa had just escaped from Tibet, and, um,
2: and he said, yes, yes, go to Karmapa, but you can always come back, which was, you know,
1: ultimately, the Sita is a, a, you know, is a great bodhisattva, really, truly great bodhisattva, And uh, it's very hard to um, even understand what that is, even understand it. It just means that um, everything that he does is bodhicitta. It's not coming from his ego. It's not coming from his need. You know, it's so, you know, you have to, you have to be a very mature individual To do Badriana at all and I thought I really wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for the whole hog. So I went uh, happily to Karmapa and he let me in. He let me in. He let me into his heart and we had a wonderful several years of of a very uh, beautiful um, exchange and then he sent me back to Taisitu. so where does it end i i don't know i i don't know i mean i i have come to the conclusion i am not really capable of getting uh, enlightened in this lifetime and i don't think about it too much because it would ruin my day <laughs> so, so i i um i have to trot along and recognize i think i recognize my own limitations now more than i did before i'm I'm um, shall I say,
2: more uh, in tune with uh what's involved in even putting one foot on the ladder of enlightenment?
1: that's that's my experience. Mm. and uh, i I admire people who can, close themselves off and just do retreat because you know that's the only thing that's worth doing so um i'm 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 still a practitioner but i i don't take any um
2: much credit for that
0: when you say what's involved what are you thinking of
2: well what's involved is
1: you have to be able to be, uh, I, I think it's maturity that's involved. Most people, uh, most people who came from uh, the, the first generation or that generation were not, we were not mature. How could we be? How could we be mature? You know, she uh, uh, said to me once, I thought you were all yogis because you had, um because you had left everything in your country behind, because you you didn't care about security, because you you made this journey by yourselves, and you were
2: wandering. He said, "I thought you were yogis." I said, "Well, we thought you were a Buddha." So, so
1: you see, it was like a, I don't know whether he. I think he really he thought he thought we were yogis, and then he realized no, we're hippies. Were hippies. That's a big difference. And then he cracked down. He cracked down. Cracked the whip. So, what is what the what what is involved is you have to be um, prepared to be no, you can't you can't prepare that you cannot prepare for Vadriana. It's a path that you you um, that unfolds as you go along, and then you say, My God, how did I ever get in here? Or you might say, isn't it wonderful that I got here? It's a a very tough path because you have to really, really um, 100% keep Samaya with the Guru. That's why. The Guru can insult you, humiliate you, you know. uh, And if you believe that it's coming from Bodhicitta, you would be hurt, but you would not, maybe maybe you would not be, you would not be breaking uh, Samaya, you know? No, so that's, that's something I have learned, which is very, very hard to learn now in the uh, current climate. It's impo- In fact, I think it's almost impossible
2: to teach Badriana now properly. Caveat emptor, let the buyer
1: beware. No, I mean, you can't put enough caveats around Badriana. It's serious stuff. So um, I'm saying this not because I'm, uh, um, you know, uh, complaining. I think it's, it's the most extraordinary path ever, and it has great results if you can bear it, getting through it.
0: Why do you say that Badriana can't really be taught today in the current climate.
1: Because for
2: example, some of the Lamas misbehave to say the least. So if you get a Lama who misbehaves and you um, you think you're getting a special teaching, but in fact, you're not. And then
1: all the social conditions around you tell you that, you're, that you should out this person. And if you've taken um, empowerments and all that and, and taken him as your guru, I would say you're breaking Samaya. But other people would say, no, you're not breaking Samaya, you're helping other people not to be destroyed so that's that's the way it is the climate is such that it sh- it should be taught one-to-one and kind of secretly it's a secret path i mean at the higher stages
2: anyway and um it's not it's not for everyone not at all not at all so uh yeah that's that's um
1: you know, when, when, I mean, there's the classic story of Talopa and Naropa. You know, um, Naropa suffered, so called, suffered. He was a great, great, great being. He suffered enormously. He did everything his guru asked him. He never had to, so called, practice at all because he kept the samaya of doing whatever the guru asked him to do, although it would be considered total abuse. He could, Tulopa would get locked up today. But, you know, because he had such 100% strong faith in the uh, Buddha quality of his uh, guru, of Tulopa, he never had to do a second of uh, practice. He got enlightened just naturally with a slap on the face or something with a shoe you know so that is badriana classic badriana well how many people can do anything even approximating that it's um that's 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 what i'm talking about how many great gurus are there how much time do they have to teach one-to-one that's another factor and how much um time that the that the uh, the student is prepared to give, to give over, you know, their life to it. This this is the factors now. And of course, our minds are very, very, very busy all the time with all the technology, computers, looking at screens. You know, it's that period of time of you know, like Miller sitting in a cave, it's gone. Maybe a few people do it. Maybe a few Tibetans do it in Tibet. I think they do, because there are still examples of, you know, uh, Togden, not Togden, uh, Tukdam, Tukdam, where they, you know, they they meditate through the death state. Well, you have to be very realized to do that. In fact, um, I can't remember his name now. Um Tengar Rinpoche, Tengar
2: Rinpoche, all the way. Oh did it all the way, great being. So you
1: see, well, you know, I'm sure you know these things, but uh, this is just uh, really how it was, how
2: I experienced it, yes. And then, uh, then I moved back, of course. Um,
1: That period of time was broken, uh, when uh, Indira Gandhi was assassinated uh, and uh, everyone had to have visas to live in India, so that broke it up. And uh, also it broke, well, of course, it changed my relationship with the Shabdhrum, uh which I was, you know, involved, with whom I was involved while I was in India.
0: Well, seeing as you've raised that, perhaps we could touch on that. It's the subject of... Your book, Chronicles of Love and Death, My Years with the Lost Spiritual King of Bhutan. It's not the only subject of that book, but it's the main the main theme, of course. I'm wondering if you could say a little about the Shabdrong, who he was, how you met him, mm. and how that particular story unfolded.
1: Oh, my goodness. Oh, gosh, yeah. So, um, yeah, how... Did I meet him? Uh, I heard there were when I went to India. I went to um, Sopema with a friend, uh, which is a Guru Rinpoche place, a very sacred place where the lake is, where where he um, he uh, was seen with his consort Mandarava. Anyway, forget that. I'll start a different way. Um, Oh, yeah, I went to Tsopema, uh, and uh, I met somebody there, an English lady living in a cave, and she said, uh, "Do you know uh, Jigme? Jigme, when you go back," she said to me and my friend, "When you go back, go and visit Jigme." Who's Jigme? Oh, Jigme is um, uh, the spiritual king of Bhutan and he likes to practice English, and he's always looking for someone to talk to. And he's living at B.J. Palace, she said, B.J. Palace. And she also said that he is a, um, he's a siddha. She said he's a siddha. And she gave a description of something that he had done uh, to save somebody from drowning in the lake, and I can't really remember how it goes right now, frankly. But, uh, so we went, uh, my friend and I, we went to see Jigme, and uh, I, I describe it in the book, I think, uh, quite um, quite well. Can you find the, the passage and read it? Because I think it's, it's one of the passages that I um, uh, feel very strongly that it's better to read it um, from the moment. It's chapter two. It's the beginning of chapter two.
0: So page 26. Shabdrung Ngawang Jigmai, the exiled spiritual king of Bhutan, looked at himself in the mirror on the veranda of Bijai Palace, the crumbling remains of what had once been the Dalai Lama's temporary residence. I watched him, invisible for a moment, before climbing the stairs to the veranda. It was a late autumn afternoon in northern India, with a hint of impending darkness. But I could see him tying and untying a blue scarf around his large head inspecting every part of his reflection he was wearing a tight ill-fitting jacket which hugged his massive chest and hips struggling to reach his short heavy thighs his face was broad with a prominent nose full sensuous lips and fearless mocking eyes he touched his mustache an as yet undefined accessory which seemed to preoccupy and bemuse him his body like a tightly packed container rested on two small delicate feet whirling around abruptly he stretched out his hand to greet me. Aha! Why did you take so long? The question seemed to come from someone who was neither man nor boy, but a force field of magnetic male energy. I was taken aback. There had been no prior contact, no arrangement or plan.
1: Yeah. So so um, that's how I met him. Uh, he, was, he seemed to know I was coming or someone was coming. And there, that someone would be uh, important in his life. I think that's 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 the impression I got. Uh, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about him, but I found out more and more, of course, who he who he really was was extremely hidden. I mean, he didn't he didn't really show who he was, uh, and he didn't have any um, accompanying retinue. He was alone which is not something you see very often with a high Lama. So it, it was very intriguing to me. And also I had this feeling that he was lonely and he needed friends. And so I really wanted to be a friend. But then he fell in love. He fell in love with me. And, and that was the beginning of our um, uh, rather, you know, uh, unusual relationship and the
2: beginning of the the whole story which is full of um kind of a sort there's a sort of a little bit of a dark side there as well. I think
1: I was and I, I'm I'm saying this as a sort of slight um uh you know tongue in cheek I was going to call it um Tantric sex, black magic, and crazy love. I mean, of course, I didn't call it that. But that gives you some idea of uh, the uh, factors in this relationship in the book that I described. And a lot of it was coming from uh, his previous lifetimes. Where he was the um, the person who, well, I mean, the story is just, the story is just incredible. You know, how the first Shabdrung, Nawang um, Namgyal, in the, um, what century was it? it, was the same time as the fifth Dalai Lama, uh, how he um, turned... Uh, the warring tribes of Bhutan into a unified
2: Buddhist uh, kingdom. So that story is truly amazing because he was
1: oh, Siddha, I mean, Mahasiddha. He was really a Mahasiddha. He could fight battles uh, by, you know, sitting in a, in a, in a cave uh meditating and manifesting uh terrifying apparitions in the battlefield uh you know that's how that's how the T, the the Bhutanese kingdom was established by fending off the tibetans so it's just a you know the story itself was just so dramatic that's the word it brought out all my um you know, karma for drama. I think I went from, you know, I can say in one way, I went from drama, to trauma, to dharma, (laughs) to karma, I mean, whatever, it was all, it was all there, you know, all of it was there. And there's no question, this is also interesting, there's no question, but that great beings can undergo trauma as well. There's no question. I saw that he had been traumatized from being, um, you know, from being killed. You remember, you if, if if you're someone like that, you will remember a previous lifetime, and he did. He remembered several previous lifetimes. So, but you know, he didn't have the uh, karma or the conditions, he had the karma, but he didn't have the conditions to manifest who he really was. I was always uh, in, um, I sort of wanted, or at least I thought I wanted a sort of normal relationship, but there was no way that this was going to be a normal relationship, no way. So I had no idea. I mean, I was a little girl, Lost in the jungle, you know, of of of, of uh, another, not just another Eastern culture,
2: but a a supernatural world. I really got uh, deeply involved
1: in that, to the point where, you know, his um, his protectors manifested for me as well. I mean, this was you know, a big deal. It took me many, many years to, uh, well, whatever, process it. Many years, many, many, many years. Uh, I didn't go into therapy or anything, uh, but I know that it was uh,
2: it was just um, a defining experience, yeah. So all this this happened in
1: the five years that I was Living uh, in India, and then it continued after I got back from India, and we we had one more meeting after that, which uh, sort of ended it.
0: Yes, and it's a book full of twists and turns.
2: Is it? Yeah.
0: Uh, and it's not something that can easily be summarised in this context. And I would recommend, if people are interested in it, to get Chronicles of of Love and Death and to read that. It details everything. A couple of themes that, or questions that come to my mind in association with what you've written in this book. One of them was, you've brought it up here again, who was he? And uh, I'll quote one section. I persisted. You're not a monk, I replied. I'm not a lama either. But you are a Rinpoche. You're not an ordinary man. He replies, I'm not a Rinpoche. Who says I'm a Rinpoche, he asked challengingly. You reply, Situ Rinpoche says you are very great, like the Dalai Lama. Jigmai looked pleased, momentarily excited, his eyes lit up with interest. Really? He said that? He thought for a moment. Whoever says I'm a great man must be a fool. We have to study, read texts, do many practices, meditate in caves for twelve years or longer, then get all the signs. These are the real lamas. Do you know anyone who's doing that these days? And then later, you write about a question you write here that would haunt me for the rest of our relationship. Was this crazy wisdom or just craziness coming from the disturbances of his psyche? Was he a power maniac who was trying to possess me because he'd lost everything else? So I'm wondering, who do you think he thought he was? And Maybe that's a silly question. Maybe that's the wrong kind of question to ask. But nonetheless, that's what came to my mind. And who who do you think he
1: was? You mean in terms of was he crazy or was he, uh, uh, was it crazy wisdom or was he just crazy?
0: Well, what I mean, first of all, is why, do you, why, would he, why was he denying being a Lama, denying being a Rinpoche? Why was he qualifying himself for saying, you know, I haven't studied the texts and done the practices and so on and so forth? What do you think he meant by that?
2: Well,
1: he's trying to uh, disabuse me of the notion that um, uh, the way I'm seeing things, because he knows a lot more than me about the system and he thinks that I uh, have um, uh, stumbled into something that I know nothing about. So I think he's he's warning me uh, w- more what's involved in being a Lama or a great Lama or a Rinpoche and um, making me understand something that it's not just a name, that you're not just born and then you manifest, you know, and you're named so-and-so and then you manifest. He's trying to tell me that there is a lot, you have to go, a, the llamas have to, the real lamas have to uh, go back and learn it all over again and manifest it all over again. So it's not like pouring water from one bottle to another. That's what he's saying. He thinks I'm naive. And I certainly was. I certainly was. I learned a great deal from him. Great deal. To the point where I completely, um, uh, totally, uh, never entered my mind until much later that could this just be abusive it never entered my mind that's 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 very like it's very interesting because i never i never thought in that way i never thought like people think now uh well he's you know he's he's uh, not treating me properly well i didn't think he was treating me properly i got angry you know We had fights and so on and so forth. But I never thought this man is actually abusive. Uh, In a certain sense, I can see that he was now. But it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. It's not a cause for concern. What I got out of it was so much more than than, uh, that kind of uh, egotistic way of looking at it. It was, it was so much more, and I never, of course, well, I wrote this way before Me Too, way, way, way before, and way after the relationship had ended. So there was like a 20-year period in between before I wrote that book. So I had uh, plenty of time to look back and recall it. I just had a very good memory, very good recall. And uh, well, You know, I don't, you know, I was not, I was not in that Me Too mode. No, I mean, it was way before that anyway, so I never even thought that way. That's the truth. I never thought that way. But some people might look at it. No, actually, all the reviews of that book that I see on Amazon, all the reviews really respect it. They see where it's coming from. Um, They see it, they don't, uh, they see it as more complicated. You know, and it was more complicated. Uh, the, the, um, the, the actual uh, story of the assassination that is uh, told in the book, um, it still makes me feel I went to Bhutan um, afterwards. Oh, much afterwards. Uh, actually, I went to Bhutan before the book was published because I knew that I wouldn't be able to get in after it had been published. So I went before and um, I saw what it was like. I mean, I saw, of course, you can see dark side, you can see light side. It's your It's your um, perceptions. Uh, I did see uh, a very repressive... Um, for its own people, in terms of its own people, it was quite repressive, quite repressive. I mean, the signs, maybe it's not there anymore because you've been there recently, but signs uh, prohibiting, um, uh, prohibiting ordinary clothes inside that area that you have to wear the Bhutanese, um, the correct Bhutanese uh, clothes to get inside this temple, that kind of thing. Or even just the fact that uh, people were drinking a lot. There was a lot of alcohol consumption. So I don't—I never thought that gross national happiness was actually really happening in Bhutan. Uh, I may be wrong, really, truly. Uh, I don't want you to get the impression that uh, this is the only way to see it. No, not at all. I, I'm seeing it through a particular lens and looking out. I was looking at it, you know, from a particular lens and, uh, you know, and all, uh, well, you know, it's such a, it's, it's such an extraordinary story. Will somebody rid me of this troublesome priest is the only kind of analogy that I can think of for saying that you didn't kill the king, but that's how the king was killed simply enough i I don't know if anyone's read if you've read michael aris's book on bhutan or his his several books on bhutan but a lot of it is in there i did my research as well
0: yes and i think the perspective in the book chronicles of love and death it is your personal story it is your personal window via your relationship with the shabdrung into that world that's how you present it you don't present it as the definitive end statement uh, whatsoever. It's very personally written, and I think that that comes across. You mentioned the uh, supernatural aspects, and the Shabdrung, as, as you said, is was known as a great wizard, the original Shabdrung, I mean, and that line was known. It um, was known
1: as the great magician, the great magician.
0: The great magician, right. And um, you did have a lot of, sort of very strange supernatural in- encounters in the course of your relationship. You mentioned the Dharma protectors um, or rather, the. Um...
1: Yeah, what are they called? The, the, they're not, they're the worldly protectors. Right. That's they are. Yes, yeah. yeah. worldly protectors. They are not enlightened protectors. That's it. Yeah.
0: yeah. And also the in- incident with Patrick Boone Ikehi.
1: God, I know. That happened, honestly. It looks like, you know, I don't even think I have the imagination to dream that. You know, it, it this really happened. And the letter. Uh anyway, it's 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 very, very magic, magical. And I don't mean airy fairy magical. I mean there's a dark side of that as well. And um it was like I just had to go through it. You know, once I got into it. I couldn't get out of it until it was over. It was like that. And there was a real love there on both sides as well. So it wasn't easy. No. <laughs> it
2: definitely wasn't easy at all. I suffered a lot, actually. But you know, for me that's that was a great um so it was, it was a great, um, what what
1: should I say, it was very meaningful and especially when I, I spoke to the um, abbot after Shabdrung had died. By the way, he died in meditation, Shabdrung died in meditation and was in meditation three years after he had died and I went to see him and sat outside the uh, kudung, and uh, sat there for most of half a day. So who was he? He was who he was, but it didn't come out until he died.
2: That was the thing that I understood because it didn't have the conditions to come out. So he was, he was the real deal and I uh, didn't know it most of the time. Other people thought he was the real deal, but I didn't. To be truly honest, I didn't. I just
1: thought he was behaving very badly. (laughs) But then I did see that he was, at the end I saw, He always said to me, it doesn't show until someone dies. It doesn't really show who they are until they die.
2: Wait till you see what I am. He said, wait till you see me die. I mean, what an extraordinary thing to say. He knew who he was. He never doubted it for a second. He even said to the king of Bhutan,
1: he had a meeting with the king of Bhutan, in which um, he kind of snubbed him, really. He said, uh, the king of Bhutan said to him, prove to me that you're uh, the incarnation of Nawang Namgyal. And he replied to the uh, king, "Uh, I don't have to prove anything to you.
2: Go find out for yourself. Smoked a cigarette, blew the smoke in his face, and walked out. He never smoked, by the way. So that's what I that's what I understood happened. In other words, F off. In the book you share Number of
0: conversations you have with him about other lamas, not any lama really in particular, but lamas in general, his opinions of lamas in general. And he says there are only two great lamas, the rest only know how to deceive people. And the two great lamas he was referring to were Dalai Lama and Dudra Rinpoche. Yeah,
2: that's right.
1: That's what he said. Yeah. He was very haughty. And very arrogant, I mean, I'm just using these words now because that's what we would call it, but actually, um he felt that he was very at the same time that he was that he knew who Naong Namgyal was, and that he was the incarnation, he knew that, but at the same time he knew that he was not a very great um um he was not he was not getting it right in this lifetime. He knew he had to pass on to the next lifetime before he could do anything. And I don't know, even now, uh, I mean, who's going to who could guess what's going to happen? It's impossible.
2: Don't know the end of that story, still But I enjoyed meeting his the reincarnation.
1: And that uh, made me feel I must have done something right, because he, he really, you know, he really knew who I was and he really was very happy to see me.
2: You
0: mentioned that you went to Bhutan before the publication of the book uh, because you were, felt sure that you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, get in after it. How has the book been received when you published it?
1: Well, uh, I thought that everyone would um, denounce me for writing it. In fact, I was very surprised when it got all those good reviews. I really was. It got, it got a lot of reviews. Um, in general, I knew that Tibetans are not going to read this book, and I'm not writing it for Tibetans. Um, I'm writing it because, you know, this is actually, this is a very strong point I want to make. I I wrote it because I suddenly realized after 20 years he had left me with an
2: extremely good story. And that I was a writer. You know, I had only written
1: blessing power of the buddhas before that and then another book which sort of wasn't i don't call it like uh, in that the same in the same genre at all uh, it was a sort of il- illustrated book uh, but uh, then then i came to chronicles and it's um i edited and edited and edited out all the too intimate scenes and uh, to uh, sexy scenes and all that kind of thing as much as I could without destroying the uh, nature of the relationship and the story. Um, and uh, many people wrote, read it beforehand, advised me. Um, and I still didn't know for a long time whether I was even going to let it be published. And then I thought, what if I die? And and uh, I never tell this story. So I thought I better go ahead and do it. So I thought it was just like, I didn't have to make a point. I just thought that he left me with a story. And I think it was... Such a good story. I couldn't, uh, I just saw it as a story and myself as a character in that story. That's how I saw it. So it wasn't, it wasn't any more kind of uh, on top of me, you know, like on top. Um,
0: yes, you don't play the I'm a great Kandro because of this card at all <laughs> in this book. You
2: know. I hate
1: um, to even say it, but when I was in Bhutan, uh, they started to call me uh, Kandro, Only, only the people who knew that I was, and I just couldn't stand it. I, I said, just don't call me that. Just please don't call me that. I mean, and meant it because I, I think it's, it's a, uh, it's a very uh, charged term, and uh, I'm not worthy of it. And I, I didn't set out to be. You know, uh, so yeah, no. I, I, it's the last thing I, I wanted to be. Um, no, it's not. It's a it's a cultural thing. You know, you can you can marry a a very high lama and be a completely ordinary person, and you will be called Kandro. And maybe they're not ordinary people. Maybe they're very special people who look ordinary. I don't know. You know, it's a culture it's, it's part of a culture that is not my culture. So I try to leave it alone, mm. you know, and keep, uh, keep, keep my feet on the ground. You know, it's not, not difficult.
0: Yes. And it's a fasc- it's a fascinating look into so many of the dynamics of reincarnation of great spiritual lineage and tradition. And the intersection of that with politics and trauma. And mundane circumstance and conditions. It's really right in the middle of that and raises so many interesting questions and themes. And we've actually I think you've elaborated even further on some of them here.
1: Yeah, I think it does. I think it's a very charged book. And uh, I think would make a great film, but nobody's taken it up yet uh it would be very demanding uh, you'd have to take a side or something like that you know and uh a- a- anyway uh Frida Beatty is also supposed to be a film but um which which uh, Kabir Beatty um Frida's son uh who's a an actor um he's been trying to find a producer for so maybe that will happen but in the meantime I just uh, walk the hills with my dog, and do a bit of writing, and feel very happy. That uh, I can still do three minutes of headstand a day,
2: and <laughs> wow,
1: <laughs> and uh, I'm that I'm fit enough to enjoy life. I guess really,
2: that's mm. what
1: I'm saying. But you know, that's that's temporary
0: also yes i i noted on the back that um several of your contemporaries endorse the book glenn mullen who i've interviewed here many times mm. keith damon Mick brown have written endorsements on the back of the book
2: yeah
0: interesting you know um this has been so fascinating i have a lot more questions that I'd i'd like to ask you and perhaps perhaps we'll have to do a sequel i might have to petition you for a sequel because as you said you have a very interesting book on Frida, Beatty, who you informed me is born not too far from where my boat's parked right here in Derbyshire. That's right. And also a collection of stories of the 16th Karmapa. Now that's a very interesting com- uh, compilation, and something I think that I have a lot of questions for you about that, as well as your your book Blessing Power of the Buddha is very interesting. So I may have to p- petition you for a sequel.
1: Go ahead, petition away. <laughs>
0: consider consider yourself petitioned.
1: Okay. Okay, I've enjoyed this very much, actually, and uh, you're very easy to talk to. So I just hope that um, uh, it works on on the whole, and uh, it would be great.
0: Great. Naomi Levine, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos,
2: and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.